morning. Revelation chapter 14. Let me start off by sharing a quick little uh, anecdote from my life. When I was a kid, my family would often, my mom was a big reader, and we would often go to bookstores. And for whatever reason, I developed this really bad habit of if I found a book that I was interested in, I would pick up the book and I would turn to the last chapter and I would stand there in the bookstore and I would just start reading the last chapter and I would decide on whether or not I wanted to buy the book after I read the last chapter. Even to this day, I have a really bad habit about this. Like if there's a movie that I want to see, I will routinely either go to the Wikipedia article or IMDb and I'll read the summary of the movie before I even go see it. Now, I don't know why I'm like that. I don't know if I have attention deficit. I don't know what it is, if I'm just lacking in a t a discipline in this particular area. But one of the reasons that I love Revelation chapter 14 is because for a guy like me, what Revelation chapter 14 is essentially John flashing forward and showing us how this whole thing ends up. And it's really, really satisfying. You remember back in chapter 6 as Jesus is opening up the various seals, John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, and they cry out with a loud voice, and they say, How long, O Lord, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the response to them is that they should rest a little while longer. Back in chapter 13, John wrote, Here is the patience and faith of the saints. In chapter 14 this morning, that idea is repeated again in verse 12. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. It's almost like the deeper we go into the book of Revelation, there's this growing sense of how is this all going to turn out? And when you think about the, the rather heavy stuff we've been looking at lately, right? The war breaking out in heaven, the dragon, the antichrist, the false prophet, the woman being persecuted, to suddenly be reminded in the midst of all of this that, oh yeah, Jesus Christ is going to stand victoriously on Mount Zion and he's going to squash his enemies like a grape in a wine press. It's like suddenly there's a little bit of relief in the rest of what we've been studying. It's like picking up a book and reading the last chapter. Now, I recognize, and by the way, I'm okay with this, that there are folks who disagree with my particular view that the book of Revelation is written as though being told through different camera angles. However, I will say this, chapter 14 is another reason why I strongly believe in this particular approach when it comes to this book of the Bible. In verse 1, John sees Jesus Christ standing victoriously on Mount Zion. By the way, there's a neat cross-reference to this all the way back in the Old Testament in Psalm 2, when the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, God says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is something that clearly happens at the end of the Great Tribulation, at the climax of the Battle of Armageddon. And yet, it's written about here in chapter 14 before the bowl judgments have even been poured out, beginning in chapter 16. Speaking of Armageddon, the chapter concludes with a snapshot of that battle. In verse 14, John writes, I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. I mean, clearly this is Jesus. 
This is the second coming. John says, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Verse 19 says, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. It's difficult for us to imagine that happening anytime before the end of the great tribulation. Verse 7 says the hour of his judgment has come. In verse 8, John sees another angel declaring, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The language here, I believe, is very important. The angel doesn't declare Babylon will fall. It's in the aorist tense. Babylon is fallen. Chuck Missler says it's like saying it's history. It's over, even though we haven't even read about Babylon. And we won't read about Babylon until we come to chapter 17 and 18. And in fact, in chapter 18, John sees an angel, which I believe is the very same angel making this declaration. See if this sounds familiar. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And it becomes very similar than angel even says, all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. My point is this. It's difficult to imagine Jesus standing triumphantly on Mount Zion any time before the end of the Great Tribulation. It's difficult for us to imagine the hour of his wrath having come any time before the end of the Great Tribulation. It's difficult for us to imagine the enemies of God being trampled in the wine press before the end of the Great Tribulation. It's difficult for us to imagine here how Babylon is fallen when it's described later in chapter 17 and 18. Unless, unless this is another occasion of John, John's resumptive manner of writing, which was common in John's day, where he would write the account out to a certain point, and then he would pause and rewind and take up the account again, this time filling in different details, which is exactly what I believe John does. After having focused in on some of the key characters from the Great Tribulation in chapter 13, the Antichrist, the false prophet, John switches back to a wide-angle lens and provides us with an overview of the events all the way out to the end for the rest of the remaining time period. Then he'll switch again to another zoom lens. When we come to chapter 17 and 18, he'll push in a little closer and he'll talk about religious and commercial Babylon. So this is an exciting chapter. Uh, let's pray one more time and then we'll dive in and start to pick it apart properly. Father, we love you. <clears throat> we thank you, <clears throat> excuse me, for an opportunity to just pause before your word this morning. And I just pray that our hearts would be attuned and ready receptive to hear and to receive your word, that your word would find its way into good soil today, that it would sink down deep, that it would take root and it would bear fruit, that gives you glory. We know, Lord, 
that as the world looks and sees the fruit that comes out of our life, that's the result of your word, people give you glory. And so that's what we desire. We know that you have ordained us, you've appointed us to bear fruit, and that our fruit would remain. So would you work in our hearts today? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, verse 1, John writes, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. John says, I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the Lord, before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Verse 4, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, this is where what we have studied already comes to bear on what we're looking at this morning. The Lamb, we know, is Jesus from chapter 5. And the 144,000, we saw them all the way back in chapter 7, where John says they are 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. We learn that they're specifically sealed to serve during and survive through the Great Tribulation, which is exactly what chapter 14 presents. Bible commentator David Guzik writes, in Revelation 7, the 144,000 are seen at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, and in Revelation chapter 14, it shows them in triumph at the end of the Great Tribulation. By the way, notice that there's not 134,000, or there's not 143,999, right? Every single one of them survives through the Great Tribulation. It's kind of like what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, of all that you have given me, I have lost none. Now, David Guzik also points out something that I think is important. He says, chapter 14 answers a question that's raised by chapter 13. Because in verse 7 of chapter 13, the Antichrist, we read, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And so the question becomes, is the beast completely victorious over God's people? The presence of the 144,000 on Mount Zion with the Lamb emphatically says no. He writes, another question has to do with this satanic dictator himself. What happens to the beast and his followers? The rest of chapter 14 will answer that question. Now, these verses at the beginning of chapter 14 They're very neatly cross-referenced all the way back in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 14. There we read, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. Now, this is interesting because Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives face one another across the Kidron Valley. And one article writes this, between them, 
they almost perfectly flank the Temple Mount, the most sacred site in Judaism and also highly revered by Christians and Muslims. What's interesting is that the Mount of Olives is currently under Palestinian control and Mount Zion is currently under Israeli control. So perhaps this is Jesus standing astride both of them at the climax of the Battle of Armageddon. Verse 6 answers something that Jesus brings up in Matthew chapter 24. John writes, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. In Matthew chapter 24, the disciples come to Jesus one day, and they ask him, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And you guys know, you've studied that passage. Jesus mentions several things. He mentions wars and rumors of wars and famines, pestilence, earthquake. It's like our headlines nowadays, right? But as he works his way through his answer, he comes to a point where he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And some people have pointed at that passage and said, see, Jesus can't come back yet because the gospel hasn't gone forth into the entire world. And they'll apply Jesus' statement very literally as a rationale for why the rapture can't happen yet. I would just say this, don't set aside Revelation 14.6 because here we're told about an angel who is flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to who? Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This is literally a fulfillment of Jesus's words. Don't let anybody sell you on the idea that Jesus Christ could not come back at any moment. Of course, this should also astound us, right? at the resources God has at his disposal to get the gospel into the world. And yet he chooses to use people like us, right? I mean, here we have, how effective would it be to have a powerful supernatural being flying through the heavens preaching the gospel instead of me, right? And yet... God chooses to use us because God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. God has chosen the foolishness of the message preached to save those who would believe. And we have this message in earthen vessels. Why, Paul says, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. By the way, it seems to make no difference that this angel is flying through the heavens with the gospel to declare because we are repeatedly told throughout the book of Revelation about how people refuse to repent during this time. Note again the phrase in verse 7 that the hour of his judgment has come, another indicator that the events of this chapter happen at the end of the Great Tribulation. 
Verse 8 says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, we're going to talk more about Babylon when we come to chapter 17 and 18. Trust me, a lot to talk about when it comes to the idea of Babylon. But as I already alluded to earlier this morning, this angel's statement in verse 8 is practically verbatim. What you read in chapter 18, there's an angel there declaring, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It's an incredibly vivid description. And I believe that angel's proclamation in chapter 18 is the exact same angel making this proclamation in chapter 14. But again, when we come to chapter 18, it's like John pushes in a little closer. It's like an inset on a map. Again, we'll talk more about that when we get to that chapter. Now, verses 10 through 12, they tell us the fate of those who worship the beast and accept his mark. John says, a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, then he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Okay, several things about these verses. First of all, please note, there are no exceptions. John writes here about anyone who worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. Second, hell is forever. Verse 11 says, The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. Hell, according to the Bible, which is the source we should consult, by the way, hell, according to the Bible, doesn't last for a little while, and then someone gets out as a conditionalist would believe. Neither is hell a place where someone is completely destroyed, as an annihilationist would believe. Annihilationism is the belief that once a person goes to hell, they're totally consumed. They're annihilated, and boom, it's over. Nowhere in Scripture is that taught. Leon Morris said, the modern vogue for dispensing with hell has no counterpart in the book of Revelation. From an article entitled, The Uncomfortable Subject Jesus Addressed More Than Anyone Else, here's what we read. Jesus doesn't only reference hell, he describes it in great detail. He says it's a place of eternal torment, of unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret, and from which there is no return. To warn even loved ones, he calls hell a place of outer darkness, comparing it to Gehenna 
which was a trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem where rubbish was burned and maggots abounded. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven and describes it more vividly. There's no denying that Jesus knew, believed in, and warned about the absolute reality of hell. Commentator by the name of John Walvoord writes of the phrase forever and ever, it is literally into the ages of ages. It's the strongest expression of eternity which the Greek language is capable. Now, if you want to do a deep dive into this particular topic, this is one of those moments where I'll highlight a study we already have on our YouTube channel called Hell is for Real. And I would just encourage you to go study it. Because again, we kind of live in this day and age where people are like, well, you know, my idea of hell, it doesn't really matter what your idea of hell is. It doesn't, just doesn't matter. When Jesus, God of very God, says this is what hell's like, I'm siding with him, right? I'm going to take what he says over how we feel hell might be. Or if God was a God of love, I don't understand. It doesn't matter that you don't understand. It doesn't have to make sense to us. It's a fact. Hell is for real. And this is why we need to give our lives to Christ. So that we not only avoid going there, but that we get to spend time in his presence for all of eternity. Because notice the other thing. Third, those who go to hell are suffering in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Now this to me seems like it would be one of the worst punishments about hell. David Guzik writes, this verse shows that God is not absent from hell. He is present in all his holiness and righteous judgment. Hell will not be devoid of the presence of God, but it will be without any sense of his love. The presence of Jesus will be there, but only the presence of his holy justice and wrath against sin. In fact, there's an idea that heaven will be visible to all of those who are outside, but hell will not be visible to all of those who are in heaven. Kind of like a one-way mirror. The idea is taken from Jesus' statements about outer darkness that you find three times in Matthew's gospel, or the rich man who was able to see Lazarus from his place of torment in Luke chapter 16. Now look, we don't know if that's true or not, but here's what we do know is true. It's exactly what this verse tells us, that if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will be tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Finally, this passage also tells us that they will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. From time to time, people will look at Jesus' statement in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed and he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And they'll say that Jesus was referring to the crucifixion, that he's asking, Father, if it's possible, don't let me go to the cross. I don't agree with that. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I lay my life down that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power 
to take it up again. I believe when Jesus asked that this cup would pass from him, he's referring to this cup, the cup of God's wrath. Jesus did not want to experience the wrath of his Father. Think about it. You have Jesus Christ, God of very God. No beginning, no end, right? He has existed from before time. Suddenly, for the first time in all of the cosmos on the cross, he suddenly experienced what it was like to be separated from his Father because of our sin. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the cup that Jesus didn't want to drink. And yet he did it. He did it for you. He did it for me. So that we would not have to, because there's only two options. Either we let Jesus Christ drink this cup for us, or, like Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says, we are treasuring up for ourselves wrath in the day of God's wrath. See, either Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath for you, or you have to drink the cup of God's wrath. How much better to let Jesus Christ drink the cup for us? By comparison, look at this though. John writes in verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. He says, then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works will follow them. It's like Paul the apostle says, to die is gain for the believer. Then he says in verse 14, I looked and behold, a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Clearly this is Jesus. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, which is when this is, after the tribulation of those days, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 15 says, Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. The idea of there being a harvest at the end of the age is spoken about in other places in Scripture. Matthew 13, for instance, when Jesus is explaining the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus says, the field is the world. The harvest is the end of the age. This is what we're reading about this morning. The reapers are the angels. And as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Now, Matthew chapter 24 tells us that the elect will be gathered together from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So there seem to be two separate groups that are being harvested. That's what Revelation chapter 14 highlights for us. You have Jesus himself in verse 16 reaping the earth. It's one final harvest 
of those who have become believers during the time of the Great Tribulation. But then in verse 17, we read another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle, and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. The idea there is that they're overripe. Right? They've gone beyond the time that you'd want to normally harvest them. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, verse 20, and the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,000 600 furlongs. Bible teacher John Corson says verses 14 through 16 speaks of a harvest of grain, believers. And then verses 17 through 20 speak of a harvest of grapes. At this point, the harvest of separation has begun. The end of the world is at hand. The city in Scripture, always referring to Jerusalem, it is fitting that the grapes are pressed outside the city for it was outside the city that the true vine, Jesus Christ, was pressed to the cross for our sin. And so in these closing verses, what you have is a vivid description of the battle of Armageddon. And it's, it's really not a battle, is it, right? I mean, Jesus just comes back and crushes his enemies. It's like Psalm 2 says, He who sits in heaven shall laugh when all of the armies of the earth are assembled against the Lord and against his anointed. Now we take the term Armageddon from chapter 16, which speaks of the kings of the earth and the whole world being, being gathered together, being gathered together to the battle of that great day of God Almighty to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Har-Megiddo in Hebrew. Uh, it simply means the mountain of Megiddo. Now, Megiddo isn't really a mountain. It's, it's more of a region. It's more of a valley. Sometimes it's referred to as the Valley of Estrelon or the Valley of Jezreel. Uh, you can see from these pictures, this is the Valley of Jezreel. Um, I think the next picture, you can kind of see the, the, the mountains that borders it. It, it kind of gives it the appearance of, of a giant wine press. This is where the armies of the Antichrist are going to assemble to make war, foolishly, I might add, against Jesus Christ. He is going to come back and literally stamp and squash all over his enemies like a bunch of grapes. Revelation 19 says, He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, his, and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And when we read of the carnage in this passage, the idea of his robe being dipped in blood makes sense. Verse 20 says, Blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles. Again, Bible commentator David Guzik writes, This probably describes blood splattering up to a horse's bridle, not likely a river of blood as high as a horse's bridle. 
And it's also interesting that he mentions 1,600 furlongs, which is roughly about 200 miles. Just about 200 miles south of Megiddo is the mountains of Edom, or Basra. Now, why is that interesting? Listen to this Old Testament passage, Isaiah 63. Isaiah's writing in a prophetic exchange. He says, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who was glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? The answer, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So he asks, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? The answer, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the people's no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Isaiah chapter 63 provides an Old Testament rendering of the passages we're looking at this morning. Revelation 14, 16, and 19 and the reason Jesus' robe is dipped in blood in chapter 19 is because he himself has tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and the blood of his enemies has splattered up as high as a horse's bridle and has run out of this great winepress for a 200-mile stretch all the way from Megiddo down to Basra. Absolutely amazing. Guys, this is how it ends up. This is why we want to give our lives to Jesus Christ. He is going to return as a victorious, conquering king. Okay? So when you look at the news or you see stuff going in the, on in the world, that frustrates you, because we all do, right? Guys, just, just read this passage. And first of all, remind yourself of how this is all going to end. Okay? But then, we need to be standing in the gap on behalf of this world. This world needs to know the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. The same way that we have all come to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. But just know, a time is coming when his period of grace will be over, and he will come back, and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron after having trampled them in the winepress of the wrath of God. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for an opportunity to study your word this morning. And as we leave, we just want to pray that you would fill our hearts with a fresh awareness and appreciation for who you are, your ways, your plan, and how this is all going to end up. Lord, um, we bless you. <laughs> we just humble our hearts before you because we can see in this passage um, that you're not a pushover God. You're not a weakling God. You are a God of great justice and great strength. So we humble our hearts before you. We look forward to your return, but we pray for your mercy. We pray for 
Our family members or our friends or our neighbors or our coworkers who don't know you, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would give us by your spirit the boldness to share the gospel. God, to just be ready to open our mouths and share the message of the good news that you have paid the price, you've drank the cup of God's wrath for us, that we don't have to. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.